So I was thinking of a name for this <clears throat> talk tonight. I could call it the second night, which actually I wrote a poem about that. But uh, what is it that would be helpful? So I began to sort of look at my own practice and what uh, could be helpful also for those of you beginners, some of you are kind of in the middle, and some of you have been doing this a long, long, long time. So I thought I would um, frame this in a way that, first of all, uh, it kind of follows in uh, what Wes had discussed last night and also this morning in the sense of this capacity to uh, use that 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 uh, can look, can experience things. And see, there's this word uh, which is called klesas, or the, um, uh, you could call them the kind of difficulties or uh, the impediments, or things that in essence kind of disturb our wholeness. And that first of all, our practice is the ability to name those and know uh, how those operate. And so you've been kind of messing with them, or they, I should say, they have been messing with you <laughs> uh, since uh, you have arrived. And uh, in that process, uh, becoming familiar somewhat uh, with them and uh, finding what uh, these are old things that have held us. There's a story uh, of, uh, in the Buddha's time that he told of uh, Saka, who was the king of the devas and lived in a kind of celestial realm. And there was a uh, kind of greedy, ugly dwarf that uh, made his way to the kingdom while uh, Saka was off uh, helping uh, in his deva land. And as story goes, uh, Saka came, I mean, the dwarf came in and he went immediately to uh, the throne where uh, Saka um, rested and uh, sort of uh, uh, gave counsel uh, to the other devas. And he got up on the throne and he uh, began uh, grabbing wine and food and slurping and, and creating this tremendous mess. And of course, it was great sacrilege to all the other devas that were there at the table, at the council. And so they began admonishing him and um, insulting him and um, trying to get him to move. And every time uh, they created some kind of storm to uh, get him to move, he would get bigger. And this went on for a while, and he got bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon, he was filling uh, the room so big that they couldn't get him out the door. Right. But in the meantime, Saka returns. 
And uh, as he walks in and is a wise king of the devas, he sees the predicament. And so he goes and uh, the troll or whatever he is, this uh, creature that has now uh, become 10 times its size, uh, Saka goes and he takes his uh, robe and he puts his robe around him and then puts his crown on him and begins to offer him uh, food and uh, praise. And as he begins to do that, this troll begins to shrink, to get smaller and uglier. So much so that eventually he disappears. And that story is really the basis of, first of all, of uh, how do we deal with these when they arise? And maybe it's just the, uh, I like the language, the alchemy of welcoming, you know, uh, that we use in helpfulness, this alchemy. Uh, and this alchemy is our capacity, in a sense, to, first of all, to know uh, how uh, these impediments, these things that we see as problems in our practice, whether it's the sleepiness or grogginess that's still there, or if it's, you know, some kind of restlessness or, uh, you know, old stories, desire that's uh, kind of come in, uh, or the mind just, you know, uh, making up all kinds of garbage, you know, uh, ridiculous stuff sometimes that comes and holds our attention for, for long periods of time. So the way I wanted to talk about this tonight was uh, based on kind of three aspects that I felt could be helpful. Uh, and I, I see them also as ways that in my own practice, I've had to turn to each of these at different times. And uh, these, basically, the first part of this is just opening. Uh, it's opening to the body and opening to the kind of vidna, the feeling base of things, which also includes our a kind of very uh, base reactions, that sort of primal part of the brain that Wes was talking about last night. And that we can find uh, some way of, of, of working very simply uh, with that experience. So we just call that opening. Uh, the second aspect uh, just is how do we find balance uh, in our practice? And uh, for that, I would like to just uh, review or play with what I see for myself is sort of working with this teeter-totter of mindfulness and the aspects of stabilizing and arousing. So working with those as a way to uh, bring in this uh, wakefulness. And the third aspect I'd like to speak about tonight, uh, I just name it exploring. Uh, and it really has to do uh, with the simplicity of the mind and how it works. And that there is pure perception, you know, that it exists. Uh, it's why the Buddha could become the Buddha. That that nature was there in the Buddha, and that was also that nature is within us. And there is this pure perception that exists. 
so I'll read you my poem to uh, piddle with here. I couldn't, I came up with a great name. It's called The Second Day. So, <laughs> sitting on this staircase of time, this narrow staircase, a hollow thought captured me, pulling me back to bruised moments where silence is forgotten, the faces of love lost. Trowling through the waters of memory, looking for a place where freedom could never exist. Grabbing a thought, letting it roar through my best intentions like a wildfire on a windy day. Knowing somehow nothing really goes away until it has taught us what we need to know. Finally, releasing it back, back into nowhere. Tired of these thoughts, banging on the door of grandeur and imprisonment. Could we rest now, creating no other world than this? Sparkling in the absence of thinking. Thoughts come like sensations and sounds, asking nothing. Holding it all equally. Amazement. Hold it all equally. So exploring this first part of uh, what could be helpful has to simply do with uh, the body. Uh, that uh, we need uh, some place uh, that uh, tells us about right here. Uh, what's wonderful about this word vedna or sensation is it it can't be in the past. Uh, it can't be in the future. So the Buddha first designated that this uh, experience of body, of whether it was uh, standing or lying or sitting uh, or walking, these what he called the four postures. This fact that there's breathing that ultimately, uh, if you want to try it, you can see if you can stop your breathing. Try it out. You know. You are being breathed. You know. And so there's actually this release that has to happen of the past and the future uh, to recognize the, in essence, the power of what's here in its simplicity, 
actually in its Vedna, in its the feeling base, the sensation base of experience. Now, one of the beauties here with these uh, defilements or klesas or the difficulties or hindrances that arise in our practice, and as we become familiar with them, that there is a simple truth uh, that uh, when we put the attention uh, on the body and the mind and the body uh, connect this nama rupa, it makes this connection, there is a natural softening, a natural relaxing. Uh, As you see it here right now, you're ability to just put your attention on your butt or your legs or your feet on the floor and recognizes when the mind it's it can hear me a little bit maybe or maybe not you know i know what goes on you know <laughs> we always only listen to part of anything it's okay there's also this capacity to bring your attention uh using uh, the mind, uh, which moves, I mean, it moves faster than the speed of light. So it has this capacity to connect uh, very rapidly to what's here, uh, using the body and recognizing the movements that happen within the body. And the natural truth of what occurs when we include. Now, one of the cultural truths we have here, particularly, I think, uh, uh, something we've trained, it's not just Westerners, but it's a way we have created uh, and glorified uh, a certain aspect of our wholeness. And that aspect is the fact that uh, when a child uh, begins its process of uh, growing and uh, learning uh, the idea of um, difference and separateness, that uh, it begins a process of comparison. And that process of comparison can be held in many different ways. But in our culture, uh, it seems more important uh, to teach uh, the child uh, the relationship uh, with its comparing mind. So in a sense, it kind of separates out somewhat from its wholeness to enter the life of thinking. which sort of leaves us sort of cut off somewhere right around the neck. And it's not that this is actually good or bad. It's just not the whole. And so we come to this practice and 
uh, it must have been even at the Buddha's time since it was the first thing he pointed at as part of the practice that we had to look at the body uh, as something that could inform us uh, on how to be here, how to, in a sense, incorporate our wholeness. And also uh, the basis of Uh, the probably most uh, simplistic uh, type of letting go uh, can, can happen uh, by uh, training the mind uh, to rest uh, in a, in a sense, a wider perspective. It's inclusion. I always think it's... Uh, in a sense, a larger training because all the senses, you're smelling, you're hearing, you're tasting, um, uh, are so much up in the head. And so we put so much importance on that. I think sometimes the practice, one of the things that's been helpful to me is, uh, which may sound a little weird, is actually putting my attention in my brain and seeing if I can't relax it. You know, actually... Uh, take that, uh, in a sense, this awareness, this mindfulness, and use it to soften uh, what's there. One of uh, the things that this uh, year before last, I spent the year in India. And, uh, at the end of our journey, um, uh, my wife, who had become um, ill, uh, returned to see her family in Washington, D.C. for a month, and I went into retreat in this cave in uh, Ladakh. And... Uh, it was I, it was sort of everything I sort of dreamed of. There was a uh, it was a little cave with a forty foot so milarepa that was uh, carved in stone above it, a painted I don't know how whoever had hung over the rocks to do this uh, was phenomenal. And then there was this little uh, it was probably seven feet high, seven feet wide, seven feet deep. It didn't go in very deep and it had a door and a window, and that was it. Simple. And so the first week I was there, I, uh, and there was a monastery right nearby that in the morning I could hear uh, there was uh, 13, uh, from probably 5 to 11-year-old Theravadan monks who were Ladakis. So it was a kind of nice mix. And they would chant the suttas in the morning. And it would just, you know, touch my heart and um, that sense of devotion or inspiration, uh, even though uh, it, was, uh, it wasn't that far away, but far enough away so I could just hear it. And then when they would stop in the morning and they would come back, the, they would all, they hear with these little boys in their, in their kind of monastic gear, uh, chanting, O Mani Pemi Hum, as they 
uh, walk back to their, from the main temple to their monastery. And I was sort of in between it. And it was just lovely, you know. So I thought, oh, here. And I was looking across these white-capped mountains, this uh, Gangala Stok, which is probably 21,000 feet, and um, these prayer flags. And I thought, oh, this is, this is it, you know. And I had actually, in an inquiring mind, I had seen um, this website, maybe in 2002 or something, about this monastery that was open, uh, uh, Mahabodhi Theravada Monastery in the Ladakh area. So the first week I sat and walked, sat and walked, and then I decided this, this was this mountain uh, out in sort of the middle of this desert. And it had up, carved up on the rocks were these... Uh, um, you know, maybe 20 feet across these Omane Pemihum in all the, in the colors. Absolutely beautiful. And I knew there was something going on, and I could, there was something about sitting there that I could get these, there would be these fires and these very strong smells that would come uh, during the day sometimes. So, and this obviously had been used by yogis uh, for uh, probably centuries. But what I didn't know was that uh, here was this mountain, was the fact that it was the reason that the yogis came there was because it was a cremation ground, right? So I decided in the day I would do this kora, I'd make this circle uh, around uh, the mountain uh, for my daily walk. So I went out the first day and I started walking around and I got halfway around the mountain and suddenly I was assaulted by this smell. And the smell, I realized that what the dockies did is, is, you know, if they had a, a, a dog or a horse or a cow uh, that died, they took it out and this is high, this is the Tibetan plateau, so it's a high, dry desert. You know, it gets a half an inch of rain a year or whatever. And they throw these carcasses out there, and they rot, right? And rotting corpse is just one of the... It, it goes right to the brain and just... Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's unbelievable. And I thought, well, I just can't do this. And so I went around, and, and uh, it was, um, uh, once I got past that, it was about maybe a quarter of the distance. And the wind always seemed to blow up that valley, so uh, it was consistent in this one area. But for me, I had to go around. So I made this decision. I went back, and I sat, and I was, I was in such a great place, you know? It was like, oh, my mind was cool. Everything was just fine. I was, uh, I was really, in a sense, quite blissful. And I realized that here, again, this was my demon. This was what I had to find out. Uh, how was I going to, in a sense, become transparent? Uh, in the sense, this alchemy of welcoming. And so I began this process for the next few weeks of walking around, and when I'd hit there, you know, the first, the defense system was to shut down and close everything down. And seeing if I couldn't get through it without breathing, you know, which couldn't really happen. But 
uh, I certainly tried it, you know. And then it was, you know, just breathing through my mouth. And there were all these sort of different strategies that I created, in a sense, to block uh, what was there. And as I began this process, I realized that I would sit in the afternoons after this walk, I would sit and I would feel like uh, my whole process was very much like sitting by a river and watching sort of thoughts and these feelings. And, and uh, since I'd been there a long time, I didn't have too much left going through my mind from here. You know, it was just sort of the uh, train stations of India and also some of the smells there, but anyway. <laughs> so I was actually in a really good place. Uh, but I realized that this was something that I had to, that it was actually there as something that had been brought to me in a sense to see uh, if I could soften in this practice of this alchemy of welcoming and the kind of transparency of allowing. You know, And I think... Uh, and I'm using this in the sense of all our difficulties. You know, you may have stories that uh, you came in with or uh, things about your own, um, you know, body or, or sense of, um, you know, autonomy or somehow that you don't feel like you're enough or uh, that there is that perfectionist or that inner critic or that sense of blame that's there. And this process is, is not to turn away from it. It's actually to turn towards it and allow it somehow to inform us and find ways. First, we're going to try to block it, just like I did. Uh, eventually, uh, I got so uh, it was, it still did the same thing in some ways. Uh, but again, this capacity to actually, uh, the, all I can use is this word of, of transparency, of being transparent to what was coming. You know? And it was interesting because uh, I'd never really gone through this with smell before, you know? in the sense of actually using it as uh, one of the, in a sense, defilements or hindrances or klesas. Um, but I found that by using the attention, by putting it in the body and softening uh, actually what smells and keeping the attention there, I could actually breathe and walk through it. You know? And it, was a, it, it felt like it took a little while. It felt like uh, an accomplishment. And what had happened before was when I tried to hold my breath and I'd do all this thing, there was residue left over and it kept coming up when I'd go sit. But when I finally let it go through, there was actually no residue. As soon as I left there, then I moved around it. It didn't seem to be there anymore. It was only what was occurring in that stream. The other was I carried it with me and in a sense, uh, remembered and recreated it.
it's important to learn how to soften in the body, learn how to relax. This is not some, uh, there's nowhere you're going. There's nothing you can do with this or be with this. All it is, is our capacity to actually investigate uh, how we tighten and how we let go. And each of us, it's different. It's almost as like every, almost every retreat, there's something that comes and becomes uh, some kind of teacher for you. Uh, this is from uh, David White. So finally, when you step out of the boat into the water, everything supports you and everything confirms your courage. And if you want to drown, you could. But you don't because after all these years and all this struggle, you simply have had enough of drowning. So, your friend. Your friend to begin to turn towards and include and uh, let it inform. So the second uh, aspect of this is as we learn to sort of sit with this and work with the body, and you will find this over and over again to uh, be uh, your friend, your companion, uh, that that um, can help sustain the actual mindfulness itself is this uh, type of inclusion. Is that so? That's really the process of opening, and also uh, that has to do with the feeling base that's there, uh, the kind of the reactions to pleasantness and unpleasantness and how we uh, mess with them. The second piece, this process of balancing. Uh, in my own practice, one of the things uh, I found the most useful is, uh, and I, again, I use images in my mind. It's just the way it works. Maybe that's just a dyslexic mind or something. But a teeter-totter. Uh, this idea of balance and this mindfulness uh, is, uh, in a sense, the kind of pivotal uh, point that when uh, these factors are in balance, uh, it, it frees. in a sense, goes from uh, sometimes there can be uh, awareness uh, which still carries what they call the poisons in it, uh, kind of the defilements of, of uh, desire and aversion and delusion. And so there can be uh, this kind of vigilance or awareness that is not uh, mindfulness itself. Mindfulness in its purity uh, 
does not have the three poisons. It is, even though it may be very much like if you look at a candle flame, and from far away it looks like just one thing. But when you get very close, you see that uh, there, it is a, a flickering that is happening uh, thousands times a moment, uh, just as the mind uh, is arising uh, thousands of times a moment. When these moments uh, of really purity, of really uh, that that has uh, um, no, is no shading by pleasantness or unpleasantness or delusion. It is simply a pure moment uh, that holds, it holds nothing. Its only nature is knowing, in essence, uh, what's here. Uh, uh, pure perception. Now that kind of center line uh, is always being uh, worked with in this practice. And it's something that you all have to find for yourself. It's something we can't do so much for you. Uh, you have to learn this internally, how this works. And it really has to do with uh, what, in my mind, is kind of the, uh, is called the uh, arousing and the stabilizing factors. Uh, and these factors uh, are basically, uh, the arousing factors are investigation into phenomena, into what is occurring. So there has to be this interest or curiosity uh, that uh, brings uh, this arousing to one. There has to be energy, and this investigation uh, comes from the mind. Uh, it is a, a mental process. Uh, energy uh, is uh, the body itself. So sometimes when there's uh, kind of a lot of tiredness or sleepiness, there, we can go and we can walk fast or splash water on a face or uh, the Buddha talked about pinching uh, your earlobes uh, for sort of acupuncture points, <laughs> I guess, that uh, stimulate. But somehow to bring uh, this energetic quality. The, in the Qigong, the Wu Qi, this... this Standing posture is so phenomenally energetic. You know, there are, there's uh, monasteries in Thailand where they just do standing practice because it's so energetic. You know, it brings energy to the body. There is this, you're simply balanced on these, you know, two little things. And there is this constant flux and movement that's going on that one becomes aware of. Why we sit uh, like this is because it is the most broad base, the most stable. You know, uh, 
has its own quality of energy, but that standing has uh, maximum energy. So uh, we have to find out in ourselves what is it that you need right now to, for this teeter-totter to keep this balance. And it's really a body function. Uh, the third of these arousing factors is uh, translated as joy. And one of the truths is when there's mindfulness, when there's mindfulness, one of the truths is that the heart itself, the heart knows itself. You know? So it has this sense of, um, it's almost enoughness. There's enoughness in what's happening. And so there that, that joy is a kind of contentment, uh, which is a, also an arousing factor. Now, just as I speak of these, because I want to just, I don't want to spend a lot of time, but the investigation piece, this investigation of phenomena, is these also can be out of balance where they go, you go too far with them. And I meet people sometimes who just have this incredible, and usually this mental hunger that they have without the stability. And that investigative quality, sometimes this almost something existential inks that is driving them. When there's too much of it, uh, there is anxiousness. There is fear. There is uh, many times lost in uh, the mind's energetic uh, seeking. The same way that with energy, and uh, one can, uh, some, some things we do, uh, can arouse the energy uh, past the place where there's enough stability. And so what happens? Actually, what Wes talked about last night it is actually restlessness appears. Uh, sometimes you can sit here, and if restlessness comes, it's it's incredibly painful. You know, when there's not enough stability. So again, too much energy. The same way when there's actually, we'd say, oh, can there be too much joy? And actually what happens is, at least for myself, and I I get a lot of it, but I can get excited about it. (laughs) And then I get exuberant and I forget what I'm doing, you know? And I get terribly unmindful, you know? (laughs) And I just get caught in that. And so there's these factors that we have to look at in ourselves and stay balanced. And one of the things I really, uh, it's been so helpful for me because it really has to do with the heart. And I think sometimes uh, in this culture, sometimes it's, it's, uh, they say that the, um, the joy uh, is lost when a, in a child, that kind of exuberance and stuff, is lost when the child begins this process of comparison. A lot of times comparison for what it needs to be loved, to be taken care of to be seen, to be uh, sometimes very basic things. Uh, But 
it, you know, uh, loses uh, that joy and abandon itself uh, for what might appear to fulfill it from the outside and begins a process of abandoning uh, its inner life. So we have these are the arousing factors, and right now maybe some things of this you need to know. Uh, there's also the stabilizing factors. And the stabilizing factors, the first of these, um, which has to do with the body uh, and has very much to do with sitting practice, and, uh, uh, and it is uh, known as tranquility or ease. And it is a body function. It is somehow that we take and we stabilize the body, whether you sit in a chair, you sit and you stop. Literally stop. They have what are sometimes known in this process as resolved sittings, where you sit and say, I'm not going to move for a while. To elevate this factor uh, and, and bring it, uh, bring that stabilizing factor up, particularly if there's too much in the kind of arousal part. And again, it's using the body for that specific function. Very helpful. Not so, uh, sometimes quite uncomfortable, but it does work. <laughs> so the Six of these, six of, uh, of sixth of these, uh, is known as concentration, uh, and that is something of the mind, and and we have to, in some ways, there is kind of an approach to concentration, which very much, uh, in some ways, bothers me, in the sense it's something to get and that somehow we're going to get concentration. From this practice's point of view, it has to do uh, uh, with the mind uh, allowing an object uh, to rest, uh, whether it's the breath, whether it's the body, uh, whether it is uh, the noticing of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutral, or uh, the mind itself. And so we simply uh, rest. And it's easy sometimes where when there's too much willingness and uh, holding tightly, sometimes we actually take it into what could be a trance state. And we kind of lose, they say, losing the factors uh, of the characteristics of um, uh, just that we get so entranced that we forget impermanence and we forget uh, that uh, we forget suffering even because it gets so pleasant. And uh, we, uh, there's still a subtle identity, uh, kind of liking, in this case, liking. And that, that uh, obscures these characteristics sometimes. So uh, we have to find this 
place for, we're, for the practice of mindfulness, what I'm talking about here, the concentration we need. And much of the concentration here is based on our capacity to work with uh, not single uh, objects, but actually moving objects. It's why the Buddha picked uh, the breath, uh, which is uh, steeped in these three characteristics. The willingness to see that the breath, uh, to know if it's a short breath or a long breath or uh, it's a shallow breath. Uh, this is uh, knowing the characteristics of the impermanent phenomena, uh, which also allows us to notice the unsatisfactoriness or the suffering that sometimes appear, and that it's not about you. You know, it seems sometimes it's so impersonal that it seems personal. You know, it seems that way. It's so impersonal. But the trick is that we hold it that way. So in the last of these, and this is simply one way that it's talked about. Sometimes it's talked about in linear fashion. But I like this in the sense of the way I look at it in my own practice is trying to find what is it that's lacking or what is it that's too much that keeps me out of this balance. So the seventh of these is uh, this word uh, equanimity. And uh, equanimity, again, is uh, uh, as joy is, it's something of the heart. Uh, and it is where the mind and the heart are balanced. Now, what can happen is that uh, as a stabilizing factor, the danger in this is the equanimity can be in a way that we remove ourselves from our heart. Uh, we actually, they talk about sometimes as sort of a sort of callousness of experience that we, um, the awareness uh, is way back there. And uh, it loses kind of the humanness. And so the practice is uh, our ability to balance this mind and heart uh, in a way that uh, ultimately sees clearly and is supported by this mindfulness and the other factors, actually. You know? So this is just some language, a way for you to look at the the practice of balancing your own practice as you work here, you know. Uh, the third uh, aspect I'd like to uh, work with you is uh, something that might be helpful. And uh, I simply uh, dubbed it kind of exploring um, because it's the capacity when we learn about this balance and we learn how to kind of work with the body and the feelings and these kind of places or uh, hindrances. 
is we can take the mind and actually turn it uh, towards uh, itself. And just to make a distinction here, we are talking about brain last night and, and um, that uh, it's saying like the, um, the body is in the mind. The same way uh, the brain is in the mind. I looked at this as exploring. That's the word I used. Uh, And what's helpful here is uh, I used uh, the terminology of pure perception. And uh, I have to qualify this because it's uh, important to get the distinction here that uh, this last year when I I was in uh, India for that year, uh, I spent the whole time either sitting or studying. And one of the things I spent four months in Dharamsala, uh, one thing I haven't really studied much. So it was really interesting, and this was mostly in the Tibetan schools of the school of Buddhist dialectic uh, studies. And seeing, uh, in essence, how uh, to um, uh, get some of the terminology and uh, what they call a view in some kind of perspective. And for me, this uh, aspect of you, one of the pieces that uh, I'd like to kind of share with you was in Buddhist psychology, the fact that I was talking about the candle and how when you look far away from the candle, you look at it and what you see is a solid flame. But when you get close, you see that there are literally uh, millions of these flickerings that are occurring uh, in any one moment. Uh, very much like our consciousness and our experience is not dissimilar from that, uh, that flame. And the, there's sort of two Buddhist psychologies, one that comes out of China called the Abhidharma Kosha and one out of Sri Lanka. And uh, so I don't know how these things all equate. I'm just going to give you, because it, this has been very helpful to me, is that in one, uh, one knowing, one mind moment of knowing, uh, there are 17 of these uh, flickers that happen. And what is said in it is that the first moment The first moment is pure perception. And the next 16 moments are mental formations. You know, out of uh, what they call the aggregates. So, now that sounds like, oh gosh, how could I ever awaken if that's what's going on? But that, if you take it from a negative side, that's true. From the positive side, it means that every moment of your experience, every moment of your experience has pure perception. 
And pure perception they talk about as the ground of being, ground itself. The ground is that uh, you have in every moment the seed of this Buddha mind that is actually flickering in you in your moment after moment after moment. And you take it from that point of view, it's, it's, it's fabulous. You know, it's always there. It's always part of your experience. You're not, you cannot be separated from that purity. So I just talk about it, it makes me happy. You know? There's a, there's a word in Thai, yogapru, which translates as there with the knowing. And so in essence, what we're doing is, is we uh, train our minds <coughs> to awaken to what is happening now. You know? And soon it gets tired of what it notices. It begins to say, oh, wait, what am I looking at here? You know? uh, what I'm looking at is that uh, in any moment what arises passes away almost instantaneously. I can't hold anything. (coughs) Excuse me. So if you can't hold anything, you, you turn your head. If you turn your head to the right and you look over to the right, everything that was there is gone. Everything that happened is gone. You know. Being here, that's all that exists, is that whatever arises has the nature of not being here. So we began to take and use the mind in a sense to start looking at how we experience things. Now, what's interesting to me is that again and again, the way I look at things is based on what? What's it based on? I self-talk. Self-talk, you know? So I take what I know as a language as a collective consensus here of how we operate in this reality. And I make that my reality. So I walk around labeling everything. And suddenly my mind is based on the labeling process, not on the pure perception. It's on the mental formation. And so our practice is coming to this place where we begin, first of all, to see that's what we do. And we see that we simply impute, you know, what's here. These are my glasses. So, but what actually is it from from the purity of perception? You know, it's a a series of uh, momentary fragments of sense experience that is processed through my brain. 
then interpret it. Right? That's what I'm doing. I'm imputing this whole thing. So we began to question in this process of, well, uh, yes, there's this relative reality I'm looking at, but is this ultimate reality? You know, what is that ultimate reality? You know, does it have anything to it? Is it just empty phenomena arising? Out of nowhere, going back to nowhere, constantly, you know? And then the mind begins to turn on itself, saying, you know, who am I? No. What is this? No. In this process, then, from this third aspect, this exploration, is it begins to loosen its grip on its conceptual, on the conceptual mind, on its view, you know, how it creates uh, this reality through its language. You know. And our practice is, we have to get to know that, realize that's what we're doing, and then we can begin to actually loosen, to let go uh, of uh, our concepts and views and our opinions about things because ultimately uh, they're just things we make up. And not that they aren't necessary and they aren't part of the agreements of relative reality. But we're sitting here trying to disentangle uh, from this uh, kind of relative reality to uh, something that's, you know, I like the word the big. You know, how do we contain the big? You know, the big, it's mysterious. It's not, it's not knowable. You know, it's we make up all kinds of concepts of how we're going to die, how we're going to do this, how we're going to do that. You know, for centuries, everybody has written about this. You know. But how are you going to, you know, allow these practices help you kind of hang out with the big. No. Just a mirror, that yogapru, that knowing that all this is just imprinted on a mirror. What is it? Is it something? Or is it just another flicker? Something that passes away faster than we can actually even know it. So we maybe just have memory of it. That's for you. So, just to close here, I would like to let you, in a sense, explore some of this because it's not, it's uh, each of us at different times in our practice, you may find the body uh, really uh, all you need right now. You know, in your capacity to recognize kind of the, the pleasantness and unpleasantness and the kind of reactions that happen there and find a way to soften, to allow that. Not to struggle. 
uh, to allow to find this transparency of being through just hanging out with the body and letting the mind relax with it. Uh, there's also this factors of finding some balance. You know, and really it's as simple as these, uh, you know, when sometimes you need some arousing, some energetic pieces, you know, uh, whether it's investigation or whether it's, you know, some kind of body practice that will uh, bring your energy up. Uh, or uh, the heart is heavy and thick and not workable, and you have to begin to allow uh, what's available, the joy that uh, is part of who you are, uh, how this is. You know, let that inform your heart. You know. Or you find that there's all this restlessness and kind of busyness and stuff and you really need to stabilize. So you make a determination. Okay, I'm going to just sit here this next you know, 45 minutes. I'm going to try not to move. I'm going to relax and rest the mind. You can rest on the breath or something in the body or uh, just some simple object that tells you the truth. And uh, when the mind and the heart are balanced, there's this uh, this ability to touch the world, touch the humanness without getting lost in it, you know, without getting dramatized about it, but just letting it be there. And the last disease is just to, as the mind begins to experience things, uh, it puts more attention on the awareness or the knowing than on what it's experiencing. So it frees uh, the, what they call the objects of experience, uh, all of it. So hopefully some of this can be helpful to you. I'll read this poem again to finish. Second day, sitting on the staircase of time, this narrow staircase, a hollow thought captures me, pulls me back to bruised moments where silence is forgotten and faces of love lost, troll through the waters of memory looking for a place where freedom could never exist. Grabbing a thought, letting it roar through my best intentions like a wildfire on a windy day. 
knowing somehow that nothing really goes away until it has taught us what we need to know. Finally, releasing it back into the nowhere. Tired of these endless thoughts, banging on the door of grandeur and impoverishment. Could we rest now? Creating no other world but this. Sparkling in the absence of thinking. Thoughts come like sensations, sounds, adding nothing. Holding it all equal. Amazement. Let's just sit for a moment. So stay here. Don't get lost. Not a bad place. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.